Captain Kirk, I am of this time period. You are not. You interfere with me, with what I have to do down there, and you'll change history. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 59 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and on this episode, we're talking about Assignment Earth, the backdoor pilot broadcast at the end of Star Trek's second season, and specifically, what it might have looked like if it had gone to series. And since that's going to take uh, looking at such diverse sources as Star Trek Picard, some novels, and especially, I think, comics, I've invited the biggest comics expert I know, or Star Trek comics expert, Rich Hendley, back to the show. Welcome back, Rich. Thank you very much. But you're a fan of the Assignment Earth concept. Oh, yeah. I, I think that it would have made an excellent series. Um, in fact, I, I think it's clear others thought so, too, when you consider that shows like Quantum Leap exist. There are differences, but the idea of people moving around, fixing the mistakes and so forth, you know, that, that sort of thing. So that concept exists. I think it would have lent itself well to Star Trek. I happen mm. to love the episode. I mean, I know that it's weird to see an episode where the focus is on characters other than the main crew, with them almost sometimes a background role, but I think it works really well. That's the nature of backdoor pilots. It probably would have worked better without the Star Trek characters in it, mm -hmm. but that's just the nature of the beast, right? right. At, at the time, they weren't sure if uh, Star Trek was going to go on, and uh, this was sort of a a, a way to, to redirect the production to a different show, possibly, if, if Star Trek disappeared. Uh, in any case, it did not go on, but it's fun to imagine what if it did. And some, some writers have done that, uh, and uh, uh, I've done that as well. I mean, there, I'm, I'm going to reference it a couple times, but my piece in the Outside In Boldly Goes book, which is a book we both contributed to, yeah. is about Assignment Earth. That's the one I was assigned. <laughs> essentially, by our editor. And uh, and I just made, like, what if Star Trek had been had become obscure and Assignment Earth had been the big thing with the TNG show and everything of its own? So I might reference it again because I, I've given this some thought. But I guess, first off, we should describe what the basic premise of the show is or would have been. How would you characterize that show? What would it have been, you know, week in, week out? First of all, I think that Roberta Lincoln would have emerged as more than just a ditzy secretary. I think over time, her character would have taken on more prominence because without Kirk and Spock there, you now would have only had three main characters and one of them's a cat. <laughs> Or four and one of them's a computer. That, well, that too. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that uh, over time, I mean, get, okay, keeping in mind it's the 60s, there still would have been limitations, unfortunately, for a female character. I mean, the 60s gave us the Avengers, so clearly, clearly there, there were women being given amazing roles. But Roberta is not unusual for a 1960s show in the fact that she, um, her motivation in the episode is that she follows Gary around, gets jealous of Isis and so forth. I think that would have continued. But I do think over time that Roberta would have emerged as her own character. I'm torn as to what I think the role of Isis would have been. But that might be partly because after all of the spinoff lore, <laughs> the comics have taken her in an unusual direction in recent years. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm slanted by that. I do think, though that Gary Seven was was an, uh, an enigmatic and charismatic character, and I think the show would have worked mostly because of him. Well, Robert Lansing was a solid choice at the time. And then yeah. you had Terry Garr, who was, was a no-name, but a star in the making, as actual history would prove. Uh, and maybe she would have been a kind of fashion trendsetter in that role, perhaps. I don't know, because they really wanted... I think they were playing on the, the sort of youth quake at the end of the 60s there, you know, with that character. She was sort of supposed to be 
the hip young generation to Gary Seven's more status quo, you know, type character. Which is something, and we'll get to this later, but it's something that John Byrne picked up on. Yeah, that's true. I'm struggling with what the plots would have been, you know, just based on the pilot. Because in that one, they, I mean, there's a NASA angle, which is brought back in Star Trek Picard as well, as if that was kind of the only thing that they were looking at, you know, just preventing the, a space war to break out or, you know, at atomic satellites to be put in, in space, which at the time was already, there was already a treaty signed by the time the episode aired that would have been illegal internationally, perhaps not at the genesis of the project. So what would it, you know, what is a typical episode for this show? Is it more, is it kind of a man from uncle? Is it kind of a spy show with science fiction influences, you think? Well, it's funny that you mentioned Uncle because before you, you you mentioned it, I was actually going to respond with that there might have been a Man from Uncle or Mission Impossible type of approach. I think that the, the threats might have been both terrestrial and extraterrestrial. So, yeah, obviously things like nuclear paranoia would have played into it given that it was the 60s, but it's entirely possible that, that, that over time that they might have introduced, especially because it was a spinoff of Star Trek, that they might have introduced uh, threats from beyond, from beyond the sky. It really, I mean, I think it's a concept that, especially as its intention of being part of Star Trek's continuity, it's, it's a concept that could have gone in any number of directions, especially if time travel were worked in, or parallel universes, because these are things that exist in the Star Trek universe. So this could have gone any number of ways. I think it's inevitable we would have met a bearded, evil Gary Seven, for example. <laughs> because if there's agents here helping us, quote-unquote, right. there may be agents from another force, you know, countering us, yeah. And that's one of the things I mean when I say that there's a, there's a quantum leap similarity, because that was actually one of the plots of quantum leap. Quantum leap eventually involved an evil leaper. Evil leaper, right. At the end, yeah. So I, I think in my own article in Outside In, I called, I invented, I think I invented, I don't know where I picked up that name, but I called them the Omegans, who were, you know, just like the opposite number to uh, what the comics eventually called and a lot of other fiction decided to go with, Aegis, as the sort yeah. of organization that's been since not necessarily contradicted but at least ignored in in future canon but in any case as far as strengths and weaknesses of this show i think yeah the, the leads are a strength i think maybe the cat i read that the cat slowed down the uh, production quite a bit it's hard to train animals you know that whole hollywood maxim don't work with children and animals <laughs> exactly uh, there are more children that are exceptions to that rule than animals because children you can reason with them Animals will do whatever the hell the animals feel like doing. And they, they had that trouble on Battlestar Galactica, even though they love the chimp. You know, if an animal decides right about now, I am going to fling dung, or I'm going to go to sleep, or I'm going to, you know, snap at everybody who comes near me, or I think I'll eat this couch. You know, there's not much you can saying cut doesn't, it doesn't eliminate that. So. Cats especially. They're very independent. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in their case, they had like seven cats is the number I saw. So seven cats, one of them it was was very cuddly and easy to pick up and that's the one you always see in Gary Seven's arms or in Spock's or naturally yeah <laughs> yeah that was the best cat but you also had a cat to walk down the beam and do some you know do some action you had a cat that was uh, that would hiss on cue you had a, a cat that would just sit on the couch and do nothing else <laughs> that's it that was his secret power and and they were all very much the same build and you can't tell if you were a cat you could tell <laughs> you're just looking at the tv and going nah that's that's a different guy if you want us to believe that's the same guy come on with the cat i think it slowed down production so maybe they would have used it less uh, but at the same time they still managed to put out a tv show i mean you know the the episode didn't come in too late so i guess the cat's on TV, you know, you really need to, to churn those out in a, in a week, which was the way they were doing it back then. But I wonder if they would have used it less or used Isis uh, more as a human being. And uh, in such a case, would they have recast the part? Because it seems kind of a gag, playboy playmate, has no lines. Would that have been sustainable? Well, here, here's the interesting thing. we Putting aside all of the license stuff, if we go just by the episode, we don't know for a fact that a cat and a human woman are the only forms. This could just be a standard shapeshifter, right? So if the cat wasn't working out, any other thing is possible. The next week is a chimp, then a dog, a moose. <laughs> Who knows? The point is that that uh, they were not necessarily limited to uh, a cat and a person. And if the if the actor 
proved popular, they could have chosen to focus more on the human anyway, especially because the end of the episode kind of hints that there's going to be a love triangle there. If not love, at least a sort of competition for attention, yeah. Yeah, and that wouldn't really be the case between a human and a cat. You would need a human for that. Well, I beg to differ. (laughs) <laughs> I've had relationships collapse because of the cat. Oh, that's true too, yeah. What about all the tech? Because my feeling is from the pilot alone, I'm a Doctor Who fan, so obviously <laughs> I'm going to be wary of, okay, what are people going to say about that magic pen? You know, is it going to be the, the sonic screwdriver or even more because it can do so many things? Oh, it was definitely... Never mind like, the teleportation yeah. and et cetera, right? Well, I mean, we're also talking, though, that it spins off of a show in which one of the main characters can render you unconscious by pinching you in the shoulder and can stick his finger practically up your nose and read your mind. People teleport. Their bodies are broken down into component atoms, including presumably their soul, because if not, Star uh, Federation is committing mass murder. You know, uh, putting a, a, a laser beam on stun. You know, like th- there are things that Star Trek does... And people just buy it because it's fun. And so it's best not to look too close at the seams. I think if Simon Earth had been done well, the same thing would have been true. I mean, look, I love Star Wars, but it would it would appear while watching it that the average person, even an uneducated smuggler, speaks 943 languages because no matter who they're talking to, Han will say something and a person will go, and he'll be able to respond, right? But we know going in, it doesn't matter. It's either that Han, it's either that everybody has a Babel fish in their ear, <laughs> or they actually do speak 900 languages, in which case, why do they need translator droids? So if you examine things too closely, things fall apart, right? I suspect that with a Simon Earth, just like with Star Trek, if people enjoyed it, they would have looked past it. I mean, you brought up Doctor Who. We have to, there's a, there's a whole lot that a sonic <laughs> screwdriver can do. I've been rewatching the whole franchise and I'm, I'm halfway through Matt Smith right now. And some of the things in the last couple of doctors that the sonic can do are pretty, pretty amusing. It, it's got one screen, but it can show you anything. And so I, I suspect that that's what would have been the case with the tech. I think people would have bought it. But you're right to say, Everything that he does, including what the pen does, etc., it's not that far off from, you know, the Source series. And I think one of the interesting things, of course, is this would have been a Gene Roddenberry production. So the theme here, if, if there is a theme to Assignment Earth, it's salvation through trust. Because well said. he's going to save the world. He's only going to manage it if Spock and uh, Kirk trust him. He's only going to manage it if Roberta trusts him. So even within their little new family, there is Mm -hmm. mistrust. And once you trust, everyone trusts one another, then they can save the world. And this is also a Cold War show, obviously from the pilot. And in the Cold War, what is it about? It's mistrust. Mistrust between nations. Mistrust between neighbors, like the commie scare or whatever. So I think that would have been the overarching theme of the series, if there is one, based on the pilot. And of course, Roddenberry would have made it political. There's no way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, despite despite what some modern-day Trek fans will say, Star Trek has been political since day one, and so he absolutely would have. What you were just saying reminded me of something I meant to say before when you, when you asked me what I thought the concept would be. I think that the very title of Simon Earth tells us part of where that series could have gone. Because if there's an assignment Earth... There very likely is an assignment Andor, an assignment Teller Prime, and an assignment Vulcan, and assignment, you know, Kronos, and so forth. That there are, there, his mysterious employers have agents, supervisors, and they go to various places. So the potential for assignment Earth is pretty huge because we have to assume that Gary's not operating in a vacuum. So, with that in mind, there's any number of ways that that show could have brought in aliens. There's any number of ways it could have brought space travel if Gary needed to go help somebody on Vulcan, for example. His assignment was Earth, but he is first and foremost an employee, rather, of the Aegis. So there's any number of ways that that could have gone. And, and there's also the idea that, you know, we're, we're introduced to Gary in his search for two other agents. So we already know that there are, are many agents out there. So they're pretty limitless landscape. And Roddenberry was good with that sort of thing. And Assignment Earth also could be, you know, like we know the other media will use time travel, etc. So Earth, everything doesn't have to happen in 1968. 
you know, exactly. necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The, the, basically, the, the title describes what Gary's mission is. His assignment is to protect Earth. But there's so much that isn't spoken in that that you can interpolate, which is that there are so many other people protecting so many other worlds. It's a huge landscape. I would have loved to see it. And, and it's interesting because you, you talked about the, uh, the what if before. What if that had been the big show, not Star Trek? I mean, it, we, we might actually have 12 assignment Earth shows right now. <laughs> if if somehow we, we would have a, we would have a Simon Earth lower decks about the agents who don't really get enough notice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the people at the base, the ages base or whatever. <laughs> right, right. There, we would have a Simon Earth prodigy, where in which a bunch of escaped uh, slaves find a pen at a beta five. <laughs> I mean, it's wild to think of where this could have gone, but it definitely had a lot of potential to grow. Yeah, my article had. The a TNG episode, you know, version, uh, a revival where uh, Robert Lansing comes back for that first episode just to pass the torch over to Jasper Nine, played by Patrick Stewart. You know, I, I was having fun with it. It's wild though. Both of us wrote about a Simon Earth for about Outside In. I don't know if you know that. How how did that happen? Since my essay for the Next Generation volume was for Code of Honor. And what I wrote about was that Gary Seven, in an effort to prevent the filming of the most racist episode of of Star Trek, inadvertently also calls the most racist episodes of Stargate, Twilight Zone, and other franchises. (laughs) And uh, and so I have Gary Seven uh, giving a, uh, a report tying all these things together that it's all his fault. It doesn't really synopsize well, but I thought it was funny. (laughs) <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I, I remember, I vaguely remember that article because I did read the book some years ago. So, okay, that was you. <laughs> yeah, weirdly, uh, you and I both ended up, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of essays between the, the classic series and the next generation and now Deep Space Nine and the Picard PDF. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of essays. So it's weird that both of us covered Assignment Earth. And that's why we're together on a podcast doing the same. Exactly, yeah. The fates wanted it. The ages wanted it. Very groovy. So let's look at those other media appearances, because maybe what we see there, is that a good way to go with the, the show we're proposing, you know, sort of thing. We talk about the ages. I mean, they've been portrayed differently, different times. John Byrne certainly made them budget-busting aliens, but they were shapeshifters as well. So they run supervisors on different planets. And that's where the term Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, comes from. Uh, It was used even in the novels. It was just decided that the Aegis, that's the name of the organization. So as far as I know, there's no... I mean, the first appearance of that word is in the the DC Star Trek comics. Am I right? I believe that that's the case, yes. Um, I mean, that's actually also the first time that... Gary even showed up after Simon Earth, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that that was the first uh, return. That's the first time. Howard Weinstein? Howard Weinstein, yeah. So he invented that concept and it was just adopted by everyone. In the Star Trek Picard show, we're going to talk about that later, but they don't use that word. All the novels and comics are non-canon. Not yet. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the the current shows have been pulling a lot of stuff from the books, like Una's name, for example. So as they could. There's a possibility, but they don't mention the ages. We'll talk about what they actually call them. There would also might have been almost there. There was almost a an opportunity for Voyager to contradict it because the episode Prime Factors, mm-hmm. which was in the first season, uh, according to like one of the the primitive story treatments for it, one of the earlier versions, Voyager would have encountered a cloaked planet, the very same that Gary Seven talks about in the pilot. Hmm. Uh, we might have had the truth of it from that story, but then it evolved and it became something else. No go. That's wild because that would have totally changed the premise of Star Trek Picard's second season. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, I mean, it would have, there would have been differences, but the, it, it just it also would not have been as monumental because it, this was the first time that we saw a supervisor since Assignment Earth on the screen. Right. So it wouldn't have been as monumental a thing if it had shown up twenty, you know, halfway in the halfway point in Voyager. So the Peacekeeper, that's the first story to ever do it, to call it the Aegis, etc. And it's in uh, Star Trek uh, second volume, 49 and 50. We have rogue agents causing problems. Here, Gary and Isis are time travelers. They obviously have that ability, which is a change in premise that really affects the stories to come, because they use that a lot. 
and it helps them interact with Star Trek crews. I'm glad you point that out because since the, the, the episode of Simon Earth involved time travel, a lot of people assume Gary Seven was a time traveler, but the time travelers were Spock and Kirk. There's nothing to say that Gary Seven can't time travel. I mean, for example, he knows about the future, and I think that's where people is why they assume this. So, uh, you know, he, he knows that humans and Vulcans are, uh, get to know each other. He knows about the Federation and so forth. So it's, it's natural to assume it, but it didn't actually state in that that he was a time traveler. So, yeah, the comics introduced that concept and the writers since then have, have run with it. And, I, and I, I, I have no problem with it, really. I think it makes sense if he has that knowledge. There is a question here wh- whether the supervisors uh, or the Aegis or whoever is running them were involved in the Temporal Cold War from Enterprise. Well, that's what I was hoping Picard's second season was going to do. Yeah, I was. I thought that I was. I was really hoping that they were going to connect it to the Temporal Cold War, or to or or, or to um. Oh, what's his name? I'm drawing a blank on his name. Daniels. Daniels. Daniels was obviously working for someone, and this that whole storyline. Like, who is that shadowy figure? We never really get an answer to that, or it seems. Yeah, depending on what interview you read, it's either uh, it's either a Romulan or Archer himself, depending on who on which which interviews you read. So it's hard to say. They never decided what. It was going to be because they never got to that storyline. They just abandoned it. And we do hear about the Temporal Cold War in, or the Time Wars in Discovery. They mentioned there was like a period there, which is outlawed time travel in that super future. There is a, a way to connect all of this and to say that if the Aegis is a time traveling body and they send angels throughout space and time, then, you know, they might have participated in that. Daniels might have been a character that was, you know, part of the Aegis, perhaps just because of the his attitude towards the war. And that might have been one of the factions. What's really wild is that in Doctor Who, the Time Lords kind of have a... Depending on the episode, the Doctor and the writer, they sometimes have a non-interference rule. I mean, and, you know, that could change from one scene to the next. But during the 13th Doctor's reign, we, we had flashbacks to her time early on as an agent. And it seems that there was a time when the Time Lords acted like the Aegis, which I found fascinating. Or at least a faction within, you know. Right. I mean, every Time Patrol-type story has this sort of concept. We have to protect history. We have to protect the history that is that's going to lead to us. I mean, Voyager did it, too. Yeah. In even Deep Space Nine, when we find out that uh, that Starfleet uh, considered Kirk a, <laughs> a, a, a menace when it came to violating the such, you know, such rules. And in spite of the accidental interference with history by the Earth ship from the future, the mission was completed. So that's, that was the first story, and that established some things that are going to keep going. Then we had Split Infinities and Future Imperiled, which are uh, the Star Trek annuals, number six. Star Trek annual, number six, and Star Trek uh, Next Generation annual, number six, still from DC. Here... It's Gary versus the Davidians from Time Zero, who are taking important people from history, including Spock, so he can't reunite the Vulcans and the Romulans, which is also a plot from the novel Assignment Eternity, which I'm going to talk about later, but it's the same plot. What's wild about it is this also is is an important story for Gary Seven and his people because it's the first one that involves crews or, or main characters other than Kirk's crew. Because not only do we have Picard's crew, but we have John Harriman. The Enterprise B, yeah. Right, right, exactly. So it expanded the um, connections between televised Star Trek and uh, and Assignment Earth. And it gave Gary Seven a love interest. There's another agent called Exana. Which, by the way, I, 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 on a sidebar here, I always find it amusing, and this long predates Star Trek, so this is not a knock on Star Trek, but when you have a, a a female character in fiction, it's a pretty good bet that 99% of the time her name will end in A. And I always find that amusing. Once you see it, it's hard not to notice it. They introduce a love interest very often in with A. Now, I know immediately you'll go, what about Vosh? Okay, fine. There are exceptions. There's a lot of them in real life as well. And there you go. That's why. <laughs> and, then, and then the novels decide to get in on the action. So Assignment Eternity came out in 1998. I know it has its fans, according to websites that, that put reviews, but uh, it has the same plot as the annuals, essentially, because, again, Spock and reunification are at the center of it. But it also introduces a Romulan supervisor in the Toss era, and there's a different Warcat, etc. 
uh, which is more of a more of like a tiger or battle cat, but it, it turns into a person as well. The joke of the novel is that all the things we ascribe to James Bond and Men from Uncle and Mission Impossible, they were all Gary and Roberta's doing. Time travel aside, the the author's contention is that the series would have been a sci-fi espionage hybrid. There's a lot of Easter eggs where, you know, they save the prisoner, you know, that kind of stuff. When they're just thinking about their past adventures, with a wide brush, every 60s, early 70s thing is sort of name-checked and part of their universe, and maybe they took the place of... They would have beat Goldfinger, kind of, but Goldfinger's earlier, so it's not that. But still, it's stuff like that, you know? I, You know, I, I actually think it sounds like a pretty cool concept. <laughs> and I know that Greg Cox did, did similar things with uh, with his con novels. And the con novels, you've got Gary Seven, etc. Here, the team tries to stop the race of Superman from taking over the world because that makes sense because the early 70s are sort of name-checked as when those scientists did their experiments in eugenics so that Khan can be a big leader in the 90s, according to Star Trek history. So they can't stop it from starting, but, you know, help stop it in its tracks. The novel has Gary interact with Khan at different points in his life and is responsible for the development of the DY-100 spacecraft and sending Khan and his people out into space so that they can leave Earth alone. Uh, And the world does seem back on track in Picard's 2024 adventure, you know. So uh, the novel ends with Gary leaving Earth and Roberta in charge of her own Tomcat partner, which of course contradicts scenes from the comics. But in the novel continuity, at least, uh, Roberta kind of becomes, Roberta Seven, you know, (laughs) kind of becomes the agent and uh, Gary Seven leaves her to it. License fiction can be a double-edged sword. And one, one could argue for whether this is good or bad in that different stories from different publishers and in different media don't always jibe. And you, so you end up with one publisher in one media giving a, a fate for Gary Seven that'll be totally contradicted and another one and so forth. Or, or the nature or the appearance of the ages could change from one to the next. And this has been going on with, with Star Trek since the very beginning. There are there were so or in the early days of the novels there were so many different names and fates given for the Romulan commander from the Enterprise incident, for example. Right. <laughs> you know, back then I, I religiously read every single novel that came out and it I remember being like, Man, this is like the fourth name now given to this character. And you know, it, it's beyond the at the time at least, it was beyond the control of the editors. That was how things were done. It does make for a frustrating experience, but I'm on the fence with this one because I also know that with it, when you have a franchise as large as Star Trek or Star Wars or Doctor Who, it, it becomes a point where it becomes prohibitive for new writers to come in if they are bound by 2,506 stories that exist, right? <laughs> so there's no way for – unless you have one person assigned whose job it is to make sure nothing contradicts it's almost impossible to have everything connect. And so then it becomes, well, or maybe we should just write our own story and not worry about it. I could see people arguing in defense of both. I'm not entirely sure where I sit. As a fan, like a lot of people, I'd love things to match up. But as a writer, I also know that's not always possible. If you were to put that rule in place that it all has to count, they just wouldn't let the novels and comics do anything of substance. And that's a big part right there because now everything would be playing it safe. Yeah. Because you just couldn't do anything like show the fate of anyone that might return on a future show, you know? And so something like IDW's year five, and I keep jumping ahead and I won't say why, but year five would never have happened in such an environment. Exactly. And that's just one of many, many examples and including the rise and fall of Khan Union Singh. They always want to go back to talk about Khan and Khan light, you know, elements. <laughs> you can't very well give the fate or the too many details about Khan if you're it's going to be contradicted on TV later or in a movie which is why I'm okay when I when I'm reading all the comics I mean I, you know me I'm, I'm a guy yeah. who will binge the comics every few years from gold key to present and it's hard for me not to notice <laughs> that totally contradicts something else right but I, it's not like I can expect the IDW writers to be referencing things from the 1980 Marvel series it would be naive and unrealistic for me to expect that and so it is inevitable when you read licensed literature that you're going to find contradictions and then you just go, well, look, I can enjoy all of this. See, I think, see, I think people who get all worked up when Strange New Worlds changes something, 
I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't notice it. If, if you're a fan, you're going to notice. But getting angry and vitriolic is crazy to me. Why? It's a multiverse. There's no reason to say these – and a multiverse is an infinite number of permutations. So when I see Gary Seven having three different fates, I'm like, well, it's three different permutations. I'm okay with it. If I enjoy them, that's all I care about. As a fan of Doctor Who's Extra Canon, there are like three or four fates for uh, Perry. So I'm quite quite used to it. Quite used to it. And you have to be that way, really. It's the healthiest way to enjoy it because the ultimate reason why novels and comics and short stories and video games and role-playing games are produced – okay, well, oh, the, the reason they're produced is to make money. But putting that aside – the main reason they're produced is so that readers can have something new in the in the franchise to enjoy. And sitting on my shelves are about a thousand Star Trek comics. And if I got angry and refused to read them because they might contradict each other, well, I'm the only one who suffers for that. Exactly. In the end, I choose to say, well, look, if I enjoy the story, canon is far less important to me. And that's how I'm able to enjoy all the different variations on Assignment Earth. They do not line up. Gary and, and Isis in particular really vary from one publisher to the next in terms of their motivations and so forth. And that's okay with me because it's just a different – it's a different variation of them in a different universe. But up to now, what we've seen, except for uh, the rise and fall of Khan Union Singh, you know, you're always going back to Star Trek, the original series. They're always interacting with Kirk or maybe Picard, etc., but they're always interacting with Star Trek. They're not right. the standalone thing. Rise and Fall is maybe the exception, but there's another one, and it's an important one, and I think it, it's may maybe the template for what the show would have been like at the time, and that's IDW's Assignment Earth series by John Byrne. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you, I am... Um... I'm an unabashed fan of John Byrne's Star Trek. I, I love pretty much everything he did, and I wish he was still writing for them. This came out in 2008, and it agrees with the 1998 novel uh, by making it espionage with sci-fi thrown in, you know. And what I liked about the series, and in a way it's it can be a weakness because it feels like sometimes some stories are hinted at that never really loop back in, but it's that he advanced the year, you know, by one year, every issue. So we sort yeah. of had over those five issues, you know, a look, a peep into the life of that series. Right. Like it, it was that we got it, I mean, it wasn't like each issue spanned a year, but we got five episodes from a five year run that are all a year apart. Right. And, and you could tell time has passed so that they're because they'll refer to things like uh, Roberta having gotten a boyfriend in the meantime and so forth. There are missions in between. And the cool thing about that is if it was a five year run, well, then if you squint your eyes and, you know, and cock your head to an angle, all the other spinoff stories can take place in between these issues with relative ease. I say relative because it can't, <laughs> but uh, there are times when it doesn't contradict. But I like the fact that we get the idea that the show actually happened. To me, it's a cool conceit. And Roberta's always changing styles to fit the, the year, you know, but she never really finds out that Isis is a, can be a woman, you know, through this. It, there's always like this suspicion between them and <laughs> she never finds out. I thought maybe she'd find out, you know, year four, year three. I don't know how quickly I would have done it personally. It did happen eventually, though. It did happen because the two of them visited um, the Vietnam Memorial. Vietnam Memorial, uh, and when when Roberta was older, they're both women at that point. They're both women, and they're very close friends. So the idea is that there was an entire series of adventures here that we didn't get to see. And you can tell from the from one story to the next, Roberta becomes more and more has more and more agency. She has been more and more exactly have more and more ability than she had, of course, in the pilot. Obviously, just one of the reasons why I'm okay with the fact that the show didn't happen because even though I think like I, I started off this saying that I think that she would become more integral, I don't know that she ever would have had as much agency as the spinoff writers gave her because the simple fact is that the show would have been written in the '60s and we saw how much agency her and Chapel and Rand had. So I, I'm not sure that she would have been given the meaty material she got uh, in the spin-off stuff. Well, it's kind of intriguing because that those were ensemble shows. Well, they weren't ensemble shows. <laughs> they had definite stars, which were male. Oh, yeah. But, it, you know, we're talking about characters who were part of that support crew. So they don't get so much to do, etc., because they're not main cast. Uh, it was often a case from reading the uh, production uh, notes, it was very much a case of trying to, well, let's save money. If Uhura's just going to say one line, 
and she gets such and such a paycheck. Let's just put an extra in there or just put a like a, a day player, you know, who's going to cost us much right, less. Exactly. So that's how they sort of disappear from scripts sometimes um, when their, their parts are cut too far. And then you've got Assignment Earth. It's Gary Seven, and he's surrounded by women. Roberta, Isis, and the Beta computer are all women. You know, I never really looked at it that way, but now I really wish the show had been done because, especially because Isis probably would have been pretty kick-ass. So uh, I have a feeling that maybe I'm wrong about the agency. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't looked at it that way, but you, but what you have here is Isis being a very competent agent. I mean, several times, even when she's in cat form, Gary is confiding in her, getting her advice, and treating her like a fellow agent. You got Beta 5, who is super intelligent, and Roberta, who probably would have had character growth. So, yeah, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe there would have been a lot more agency than I'm giving them credit for. I'm just going by Roddenberry. Look, don't be wrong. I love Roddenberry. But yeah. I'm going by Roddenberry's track record. I mean, you know, with the dialogue in the cage about number one and cult being, you know, basically amounting to which one would get to have sex with Pike, for example, you know. I don't know, but I would have loved to see what happened. I actually think it's a great episode. And the comic, I think, has a lot of strengths as well, you know, just like seeing just those characters alone without the interference of Star Trek. In 1971, which is the last issue, they create an opposite to Aegis called Counter-Strike. Basically, their deal is to destroy worlds that have become too advanced, and they're sort of cheating because they're trying to advance Earth too quickly so that they can then justify its destruction. So you really do have an opposite age, just like we were talking about earlier. One thing about, um, we, we, we forgot to mention with uh, Simon Earth, is that those two continued in Star Trek crew number four and Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor three and four. That's where I was going, because one of the issues shows us, I, mean, I don't know, there's... There's something about Aegis and connecting it to our world's eugenics problem. Uh, because there's the Khan story, obviously. But in one of those issues, there's a clone army. And yeah. the solution is to put them on another planet, which is where the crew number four picks up. Because number one finds this... They, they've been living on this planet, these clones, you know. That story, by the way, is wild. Because it, uh, it... I don't know if you remember this, but it actually gave a final fate for Lincoln, which is pretty cool. It says that uh, Roberta vanished in, two, in 2039 at age 91 and was last seen walking around carrying a black cat. Very cute. <laughs> yeah, and then it also said that when she was in her 70s, her granddaughter published a series of novels about uh, Roberta's exploits with, with, with uh, Seven, which is interesting because on the one hand, you would think, well, that seems like a betrayal of Gary, but it actually makes one weird thing about the episode, about the original episode make sense because at the end of the episode is sort of a teaser for the, for the spinoff show. Spock mentions that he found a number of their exploits in the, in the, in the computer and that they're going to be having some interesting times ahead. And the question becomes, well, how the hell did he look up Gary Seven's exploits if they're secret agents? <laughs> but it makes sense then if Roberta's granddaughter published a series of novels about her exploits uh, after the fact that um, once Spock knew who Roberta Lincoln was, found them. Right, okay. Yeah, uh, because obviously when Spock says it, it's just like, it's, it is a teaser for the show if it ever went to, you know, went to series. But yeah, so the clone army, John Byrne returns to this in crew number four and Letter McCoy, Frontier Doctor three and four. So there's a complete story there, you know, a sequel. Yeah, it becomes a three-parter, tying together the three stories he was writing at the time. And he also did New Visions, right? And Gary Seven also appears in this? He appears in issues seven and 22. And, and for those who don't know, New Visions was a, I, I think it was an incredibly fun thing that Byrne did. I'm sure a lot of the people listening will remember the Star Trek photo novels from the 70s. And uh, for those who didn't, what, what they were basically were a unique form of comic book that were, they were kind of a fad back then it wasn't just star trek there were others yeah. too but it, the idea is that they were a comic book made from photo stills from episodes and so but but there was a series of 12 based on the original series and then two others based on the first two movies one of which was actually text-based but it was still in that same um, media range and uh the idea was that you would tell like take the episode 
Trouble with Tribbles and you have 300 frames from the show with speech bubbles. So it looked like a comic book, but it was using actual footage to retell the episode. And for a long time, those 12 books were really popular because before streaming and before the show was available on VHS, unless you were ha lucky to be in an area that was showing it at a certain – you were available at that time – those 12 books were a really cool way to revisit your 12 of your favorite episodes. Mm -hmm. So what uh, Byrne came along and did is said, well, you know, if you could do that for the episodes, you could create new stories the same way with photo manipulation. So he came out with a series called Star Trek New Visions, which was, uh, I mean, it was it was pretty ambitious. And I, I could see why it ended after 22 issues, because it must have been very tiring to do. It took all of the, uh, the, the existing cells from the episodes, and then he would film new people he would get people to to um pose for him he would he would use photo manipulation and art to create new backgrounds and new uh outfits and so forth and just tell new tales but the nature of this series was that obviously sequels would be easier than original stories because it's very easy to take a picture of Robert Lansing and manipulate it not so easy if you're not drawing a person to come up with a new character Unless you do what he also did, which was kind of funny. He sometimes recast existing actors in new roles. And Star Trek is, has, has a history of doing that. So it was an amusing thing whenever he did that. In the case of um, Simon Earth, he had two issues about Gary Seven. And one, Roberta uh, is home enjoying Thanksgiving with her family, which is really, other than the granddaughter thing, one of the only times that the comics has ever even made reference to her family. And by the way, that callback, I think that's another thing we would have seen if the show had gone to TV. Because she was... A a person who was just a normal person from that era. I think we would have gotten to know more about her, her life too. But anyway, so this uh, these two stories revolve around uh, World War Three aliens who are trying to um, time travel aliens who are trying to cite World War Three in 1971. Kirk has to help Seven prevent that. That's issue number seven, and then issue number 22 is an interesting one because it involves a parallel universe version of Gary Seven. And the reason I like it is it kind of justifies my point that. There are other Garys out there, which is why I can accept all of these different versions. So there's a parallel universe that the Guardian of Forever sends Kirk and Spock to, where they encounter Gary Seven and Isis in the early 21st century. Roberta's nowhere to be seen, but I guess in this universe they're not traveling with her. And Seven has a Beta 12, so I guess it's a really advanced version of the other one. Okay. <laughs> and then the most recent appearance, uh, not on TV, but in comics, is the Year 5 comics. And in this... I'm afraid Gary and Isis go a little off. Whenever I've made the oblique references to things that didn't jive with other fiction, this is it. What I was specifically referring to was the fact that DC had shown an older version of Gary with his love interest and Isis, and they're still traveling around for the ages fixing things. Except year five shows that the Aegis were evil bastards the whole time. And Isis was a was a murderous psychopath and was who was manipulating Gary. And that bef at the end of Kirk's five year mission, everything goes bonkers when the Aegis try to destroy everything and Isis dies. And it's a fascinating story that's very well drawn, very, very well drawn and has a lot to offer. But it is weird after all of these other stories that somebody would then turn Gary and Isis into the villains. And what's even weirder about it, earlier on in the conversation I'd said that different media and different publishers often would contradict each other because they're not beholden. DC is not beholden to what the original Marvel run did and the later Marvel run would not be beholden to what DC did and so forth. But what's weird here is that Year 5 was published by the same publisher that did all of the John Byrne stories. So I guess you could argue that the DC run is the only one about an older Gary. So technically, it's not really contradicting anything. But what's really interesting about this, and I don't know if you picked up on this, is that when there's a shot of there's a there's a there's a panel in year five showing the ages and they're drawn like the ones from DC. Okay. Yeah. So they're clearly the same ages from DC. They're drawn exact. It's even the same panel, basically just reused, uh, which was a great homage. But then it doesn't make sense that Gary and Isis are evil and Isis is dead. Yeah. <laughs> so. But 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 again, multiverse, right? So I, I'm okay with it because in another universe, the ages still look like that, but they were evil, and I'm okay with that. And if there's time travel involved, might someone have split off and come from a different timeline type thing? Because yeah, this is the one where Isis is 
you know, she's slashing at people like she's Wolverine, and <laughs> uh, and they start a war with the Tholians, and also all the sort. Of, it's an interesting arc overall, but also I kind of felt like, especially like maybe I'm not that invested in, in Gary Seven normally, but because we're doing this show and I'm looking at these comics and I'm going, well, <laughs> it sort of undoes everything that we. That we liked about the previous stories. I, I was torn on that because I love Year Five. There's one or two stories late, early in the run that I, I kind of question, like Chekhov and Sulu not talking to each other for a really long span of time, which kind of is a weird thing to do given the amount of stories has set during the five year mission, which would now have to take place either before or after that year. So it's a very limiting thing to do. But. Putting that aside, I thought Year 5 was really a very good achievement. But it, it is a very strange thing to do to make uh, Gary and, and Isis evil. I have a kind of no prize or a fix for it as we head into the Picard show and discuss how Aegis was used in that. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Because I don't necessarily think that it's it's a bad idea to make them an evil entity. So, uh, you know, because of what we were talking before, that if you have too many restrictions you end up with um, safe storytelling. So I, I applaud Year 5 and IDW and the creative team for doing something that was neither safe nor in any way expected. So I would love to hear your depiction of how Picard justifies it, because that's cool, if, if so. Well, obviously, the Picard show, if not contradict, well, it contradicts that because we see that there are supervisors and we, we know who's one of the people at the top, and so we cannot believe... Who is one of the racist people yeah, around. Yeah, so, yeah. cannot be... A villainous in this case. So what if, and they're not called Aegis, but what if the Watchers or the Supervisors or the Travelers, as as they are called, and like choose one, please. But <laughs> well, I think the Watchers, the Travelers, and the Supervisors have different roles. That's how I kind of look uh, at okay. it. Okay, yeah. I think that these are people who give titles instead of using names. But I, I, my guess is that these are ranks or different roles. Well, let's say the Travelers are the contemporary Aegis. By contemporary, I mean. In the timeline today, they are obviously heroic. But what if, you know, maybe there were more than one faction in Aegis. And at some point, an evil faction of Aegis, uh, maybe they have other plans. You know, let's destroy the Federation because we have plans further on in the timeline. That doesn't really matter what happens to this little empire here because we're thinking long game later. In any case, for a while, they were in control of Aegis. And during that period, they corrupted Isis, they corrupted Gary, and all of this sort of thing. And they're the ones that call themselves Aegis, perhaps, which we don't hear on television. But at some point, the heroic ones take over Aegis and then retroactively make sure that Isis is not corrupted, that Gary Seven isn't corrupted. And, and so if different, it's a little bit like the Temporal Cold War, if different Versions of Aegis are warring somewhere in time, wherever their cloaked planet is, etc. Then maybe that creates different versions of the timeline. That sometimes we're reading one, sometimes we're reading another. But those changes occur because Aegis itself is changing. And so the, the powers that be that control history are changing and have different priorities. And we don't know it, but we're reading a story that is in such and such a timeline. I really love that idea. And in fact, there is evidence to back you up. And for example, DC showed that there were different factions of the ages. That was the premise of the Peacekeeper. There's also the fact that we've seen more than one look for what the ages look like. There's the fact that the tra if the travelers were the people running things at the time, why is he just running around helping people um, create starship drives? And is he just recruiting? I mean, is, is that all the traveler was a recruiter? It could be that the power dynamic was different in the 23rd century than it was in the 24th. So all of this, I think, would support your idea. Let's look at that Picard story because, yes, it was kind of almost shocking that they would return to this concept this late in the game on television. But uh, here we meet Talon in terms of changing the game. She was a Romulan and not, you know, so she, this confirms that there are agents from other worlds, not just from Earth. And that, that we see in uh, the novel Assignment Eternity also has a Romulan agent. So they're sort of picking up on that. We also see it in year five, because in year five, while Gary is training, there are agents to all the major worlds. Uh, second, that she has a limited role. Like, she was just watching a single person, which is probably why a longer-lived species was used. She doesn't have a mm -hmm. cat. She doesn't have a Beta 5 computer or anything. She's not the same kind of supervisor 
a roaming supervisor as Gary Seven was. So she has a, like a smaller role where you can't imagine that a series would be very much sustainable uh, with that particular concept. But she does mention other supervisors, etc. So there are like these little specialists that if a show were to be made, those other agents who disappeared, you know, that kind of stuff. You could have other agents on Earth in the same era uh, who are working on specialty projects and then you can bring them in. It's a little bit like some of this reminded me of Sapphire and Steel, the British show. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a male and a female agent. You've got the the same kind of idea where it's not aliens. It's time is infected with an evil sort of thing. It creates pseudo supernatural things to happen. But right. it's a different threat. It's not the Star Trek universe. It's a very different, more esoteric threat but it's kind of the same idea where they show up trouble spots there's a crack in time there's something going on and we have to fix it and they sometimes brought in other elements you know who would show up and just help them as mission specialists so i could imagine a series where there are other agents on earth so you could have recurring characters who come in to help out because i alluded to that earlier before in fact that I, i think that that's what would have happened i think we would have eventually seeing the people who had assignment other than Earth, or we would have seen, and those people would have either been coming to help Gary, or Gary would have been sent to help them, or they'd be working against Gary, or there'd be two missions going on simultaneously, and they'd run into each other, because who's to say Gary's the only one with an assignment on Earth? For example, he was replacing two people, so who's to say there weren't others on Earth? Mm Especially if we now know that Talon was there specifically to only focus on one person. So if anybody else was on Earth, they had a mission other than Rene Picard. This is another story where, you know, you had the clone army, you had the Khan story. And in this case, you've got, again, Khan or eugenics or a a created person. So it's also part of Star Trek's anti-eugenics agenda, which... You know, the Federation makes it illegal, etc. So there's, again, there's like this little connection. And at the same time, another NASA story, which I think makes sense because they're really, they're trying to ensure Star Trek's future. They're also trying to protect us from being the galactic idiots. You know, <laughs> like if we're, if we're on the verge of creating nuclear weapons of mass destruction and we're on the verge of going out into space, it's a really dangerous concept. Just ask Klaatu, you know. Maybe Klaatu was one of the supervisors. I don't know. But um, in many ways, like I buy the idea that these stories about the supervisors keep going back to the same well. Because I would imagine that we were probably really making the Aegis nervous for a while there. I mean, hell, we know that we, we, we made everybody else nervous. The, the Vulcans were pretty condemning about us at that period and so forth. So I think we made a lot of people nervous. Here we are, you know, building weapons that could destroy countries, and we were building other rockets to go look at other worlds. It's, it's a scary thing. I think that the Aegis wanted to make sure we didn't blow ourselves out of the heavens before we moved beyond that period. Because we must ensure that Star Trek exists. So our trek, our eventual trek, must be preserved and... Uh, the elements that we do see on the actual aired shows kind of have to do with that. And also the eugenics thing, well, that's a big part of, in Star Trek lore, of the history of, like, this era. I also draw a line to a certain point here where, at the end, Wesley, who was a traveler, recruits Corey, who is a, an artificial human. And it's sort of like, are you really recruiting her as an agent? Uh, yes, I'm sure you are. Are you also taking a eugenics experiment out of the timeline? You know, so she can't exist or do it. You know, she can't be used. Therefore, I like that's an interesting question. That's a really good question. What's Wesley's motivation there? I keep hearing rumors of a potential Picard spinoff, and I'm kind of hoping. I know that Wesley's scene there it was divisive. I, I I know people thought it was the best thing in the season, and others who absolutely hated it. I'm of the mindset that it was the best scene in the okay. season. I, I'm, I'm on the other side of that equation. Yeah, I had a, I had a feeling from earlier comments, and I'm totally cool that we don't agree, but it's, uh, I had a feeling. I, uh, I thought the season had so much going for it and, and so much of it didn't work that the idea of uh, bringing in Wesley and giving him a put spin-off potential to finally bring assignment earth to television i thought was pretty cool which i think i suspect and i have no inside knowledge on this but i suspect the idea of introducing assignment earth now back into the fold and then giving us one of the character a character we already know and making him part of that and tying it into why the traveler took an interest in wesley my guess is that that's the spin-off but i could be totally wrong and i there's probably 
if if a hundred people at CBS and Paramount are going to listen to this show, they're going to laugh at me for being way off on that one. I mean, if there is to be a spinoff of the second season, this sort of has to be it. The other one might be a, uh, a seven and... Uh... I'll be honest with you. I love Jerry Ryan, and I think Michelle Hurd is a good, a very, very good actor. But I don't want him. I do not want a, a Seven Rafi spinoff. I will watch it because I'm the kind of fan who, <laughs> if you said we're doing a show called Star Trek Spearmint Gum, and every week is a different character chewing spearmint gum, I might complain, but I'm going to watch it and find a reason to like it. So if they do a, a, a Seven Rafi spinoff, I'll shrug and go, "Well, it wasn't the one I would have asked for." But hey, more Star Trek. But the truth is, I don't think it would. I don't see that as a great idea for a spinoff. And I'll be interested in hearing if you disagree with me. I, I have no idea. I've gone back and forth on those characters. But I don't know. If, if there's another setup here, that would be it. But I do agree that except for bringing Will Wheaton into the fold and let him, letting him do something, especially after they announced all the other, uh, all the other actors are coming from season three, but his name wasn't there conspicuously and a lot of people made jokes about it. And then, yeah. but the big surprise was that he was in season two all along. But why do that except as a little Easter egg, which is quite possibly the only reason because the, the season was so nostalgic in flavor, you know. It's possible it was just like a throwaway thing. It's possible they are setting up those characters to be, but in this case, I think it would be more of a time travel show. Oh, I think it definitely would. And, and Eric Maniak is still around, you know. I, I, I say do it. Announce a Simon Earth and have it star Traveler and Wesley, Corey, and uh, and and uh, Talon. Because it's time travel, anything's possible. Who knows? I, I just, I would love to see them do something with the concept. Because for me, Where No One Has Gone Before is one of the very best episodes of the first season of Next Generation. And uh, the other Traveler episodes were not as good as that one. But I don't in any way fault the concept of the Traveler or his performance. So I would love to see them focus more on. And I think that's the reason why I love the scene so much. The idea of is it revisited not just the Simon Earth, but also the Traveler, which is a really cool idea to me that the idea that the Travelers are connected. But hey, you know what? Your mileage may vary. And I'm, I'm not a gatekeeper. So if you feel differently, fantastic. I don't have a problem with Simon Earth becoming a show if that's where they're actually going to go with it and especially after they've developed you know modern versions of the special effects and the uh, bringing all these ideas and talking about them yeah maybe and perhaps it's based on will fans will viewers respond to it in such a way as it becomes inevitable you know just like the captain pike show so i mean my last question is whether if we go back to 1968 can the show could it have been divorced from Star Trek? You know, what does it lose if we're watching Assignment Earth as a television program and it is not necessarily set in the Star Trek universe? I think it still could have worked. It might have been a show that didn't run long and it might have been one of those shows like Time Tunnel or Land of the Giants or Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea that people have a real fondness for but is not considered one of the giants. I think what he would have lost, if anything, is Star Trek is important because it is the future that Gary is striving towards. So it just it just creates a context for, you know, like in Quantum Leap, uh, which you've mentioned often in this. Let's go back in time. Let's fix what once went wrong. And you've got a character there in Al who tells you what the bad future is for that person and then what the good yeah. future is. So you understand the stakes. Why are we making changes? Because, you know, I could turn left or turn right today and I don't know. I can only look back later. So you need the future context to know what the stakes are. So with Gary Seven, when he says, no, I got to stop this, sometimes it's going to be, okay, yeah, obviously this is evil. We can tell this is an evil thing that you want to stop. But other times, why change this? And is it really going to make things any better? But knowing that the Star Trek future is out there for us, then we know what he's working towards. I think the very premise of the episode, you know, backs you up 100% on that because... One of the things that's so intriguing is what Gary is actually trying to do in that episode. The rocket has to blow up. <laughs> so you, you would think it would be that he's there to prevent that. But it seems like he's a, an agent of chaos and destruction, which is why the other characters don't trust him. Exactly. And that's why I think I 100% agree with you it works better as Star Trek, because the idea is that what he's doing is ensuring that they exist. 
And in fact, it, what's interesting is that Picard kind of followed up on that idea, you know, because forcing Renee to do something that she's really not feeling she's ready for is arguably a pretty awful thing to do. But the future won't unfold that way otherwise. Yes. And Star Trek has a history of that because let's go back to City on the Edge of Forever. Edith Keeler has to die, which cannot be a good and yet... And yet, to sum that one up, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned City on the Edge, because one of the recurring themes in John Byrne's Gary Seven stories, particularly in, 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 uh, in New Visions, is that Gary is aware of the Guardian of Forever, and in fact, he matches the two of them up in both New Vision stories. Okay, that's a frame he can use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what's interesting, too, when you consider that Discovery revealed that, that the Guardian is more than we thought. It wasn't just a portal left there by people whose job it was to go, a question. Like it, he's a sentient being who travels around on his own. I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that we were given a human guardian named Carl, and then we saw the uh, we we returned to Simon Earth. My guess is we're going to see the guardian. Okay, again. yeah, yeah, a connection between all of these things, and maybe wrap it up in in Giorgio's fate, etc. Eventually, mm, interesting, interesting. And that is why I think that Wesley was more than just that one scene, because I think that. These pieces that we've been given, you know, think about we've been given some really interesting and uh, varied things that seem disconnected, but really aren't. Like, for example, we've got control uh, on Discovery, but we've also got a machine intelligence in the future on Picard. So in both cases, a machine intelligence involving time travel. We've got Carl, a time portal, and the Travelers. What else? We, 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 well, we, we've now got two factions of Borg, and these are also a machine intelligence that can time travel. I think all of this is heading somewhere. Oh, interesting to make it like a big tapestry. And I have to say, I wanted to do an Assignment Earth episode before Picard ever... Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it, it, just, it just happened. I was like, well, now it's timely. I got to do this now. The episode's going to be timely, you know, but I had it on my schedule uh, and was going to ask you about it eventually. And then, and then suddenly it's on... <laughs> So I uh, really thank you for giving your expertise to this and your passion for it, because you're convincing me that this would be a, a good show to put on Paramount+. Plus. I would love it. I really would. I, I think there could be a lot that they could do with it. Um, and there are numerous characters like Wesley in The Traveler that they could surprise us by tying them to the Aegis or, or to whatever they call them, the Watchers. Daniels, for example. Like There are characters they could bring back. And we would go, oh, well, that makes total sense now that I know that they're connected. There's all sorts of fun things they could do with that. And uh, so I, I really would not mind seeing that at all. There is, by the way, one comic we overlooked, and it's understandable that we did, but I wanted to point it out because it's fun. There's for, for years now, there has been an unauthorized uh, comic called Star Trek The Web Comic. Uh, and it runs weekly installments, and it, it's like the old Star Trek newspaper strips, except it's online. They have a bunch of different storylines that they've done over time. And in, in one of the ones about the halfway point showed an alternate timeline in which Gary Seven finds that his servo is missing. Because Isis, who is fed up with all of his male dominance, has given it to another female time traveler. Because he's unable to reverse the nuclear missile in the episode, it no longer malfunctions, uh, which leads to mankind destroying itself with nuclear weapons. Oh, why is this real cat behavior? Well, the reason I bring that up at the end is because it's interesting that Mark basically foresaw ISIS being pretty awful <laughs> before, or I should say not being awful, causing awful things before year five did it. The epilogue, ISIS destroys Earth. <laughs> We knew it was it was going to be a cat. If it had to be anything, it was going to be a cat. I mean, let's be honest. Cats knock everything over. Isis saw Earth and said, screw this, and knocked it off the mantelpiece. <laughs> Are you working on anything interesting that you want to pimp at this point? Let's see. Do I want to pimp? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm working on a, uh, a book with Lou Tambone, a, an essay anthology about the Joker. Um, it hasn't really been announced yet, so I don't want to say too much about that, but I'll say more when I can. Although I, I, I did just say it's about the Joker, which is already more than was announced, but there you go. I've got several proposals into different publishers right now, and I'm just, I'm in a weird holding pattern right now, waiting for um, responses on them. 
Um, but I just had a, a book come out from Sequart with Joe Dilworth. It's an essay anthology about the Stargate franchise. But like, you know, there's the graphic novel collection at Eagle Moss came to an end and so forth. So right, stuff that I was working on all basically ended. Now I'm just coming up with new projects. Thanks again, Rich. While you walk back into that purple smoke, I'll stick around for subspace transmissions. That's your feedback on our previous episode. Thanks very much. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire and Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team ups. Marvel Team Up. Yes. The Brave and the Bold. You know it. Marvel Two in One. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents. Of course. Supervillain team up? Good idea. Youngblood X Force? Mmm, technically. FW Team Up, only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Incoming subspace transmissions. A selection of your feedback on our previous episode in which Chris Franklin and I talked about the Star Trek action figures, mostly the ones from Mego, but anything before Playmates held the license. Rob Kelly starts us off. He says, great episode, guys. I could listen to Chris talk toys all day and almost have in some cases. A friend of mine had the mission playset. Pretty ingenious of Mego to just attach a glove to the plastic and tell kids to use it to make their own monster. Cost-effective and interactive. There's a picture of me, Christmas 1980, opening some of the TMP figures and bridge set. There is no follow-up picture registering my sigh of discontent over all that gray and white. And finally, he says, I remember the ads for Trek toys from a company called Dinky in mid-70s comics. Their tagline, join the Dinky Starfleet was less than compelling. David Ace Gutierrez seconds the C. Franks praise. He says, C. Franks and someone named Ryan Daly, name change for anonymity, have gotten me back into the toy scene. Uh, Brian Linton says, I never owned any of the Amigo Star Trek figures, so it was interesting to learn more about the line. What I do recall owning were some of the Star Trek The Motion Picture 3 and 3 fourths action figures. In particular, I had Kirk and my brother had Spock. My brother also had Knickerbocker's soft, posable STTMP Spock figure. Best of all, we had a pair of South Bend's Star Trek phasers, which were like laser tag guns. If the infrared beam from your phaser hit the sensor on the other phaser, then it would be temporarily disabled and unable to fire. Those were a blast Pun intended, Brian. A blast to play with. Lizanne Oswald also gives an extended account of her Star Trek action figure collection. Check it out at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And Michael Best called it a crispy, feel-good episode. Whatever that means. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like the for now small bird of the galaxy, Doug Van Diver. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. As usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. Till the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>